host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 7 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying a hot black coffee, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the unsolved murder of Charles Sessoms. In this episode, we are going to cover the murder of Charles Sessoms, a Texas A&M senior who was killed during a halftime riot between football rivals A&M and Baylor University during an annual game in 1926. The investigation into Sessoms' death was short-lived, and his murder remains unsolved. However, one likely suspect stood out to a private detective as he conducted his own work, and it is possible that he came dangerously close to uncovering a conspiracy that rose all the way to the mayor's office in Waco, Texas. Baylor and A&M's football rivalry was one of the first to exist at the college level in the sport, and it began on November 30th of 1899, when Texas A&M went to Waco to play Baylor University in their first meeting as college football teams. At this time, college football was still a relatively new sport, Neither team even had mascots yet, and the first set of rules hadn't even been established until 1876, when Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Columbia created the first rulebook. These rules were very different from the sport that we know today. At that time, the forward pass was illegal. Touchdowns and field goals were worth five points each. First downs were only five yards, and the football itself was even much larger, about the size of a watermelon. At the time of this first meeting, A&M's football program was only five years old, but it was Baylor's first year as a program, and A&M won 33 to nothing in this first game. And this marks the beginning of a storied college football rivalry. The rivalry really started to take off on Thanksgiving Day of 1901, when Baylor came back to win against A&M 47 to nothing. After this, the rivalry continued after the game off the field as the schools were relatively close in proximity, and in the early 1900s, A&M was an all-boys university with a focus on military science, and the women from Baylor reportedly started making regular trips to A&M for dates. Just to add insult to injury, A&M's football team set out to prove that Baylor's 1901 win was a mere fluke, and for the next five years, A&M won each meeting without Baylor scoring a single point. This fell under threat in 1905 after a series of deaths in football caused increasing concern around the mere existence of the sport. On November 25th of 1905, three players in three separate games were all killed on the field, all as a result of impacts sustained during their games, and the youngest being a high school student from Missouri who was only 16, and he was knocked unconscious during play and never woke up from that injury. Over a dozen other players were killed as well in 1905, and about 150 others suffered devastating injuries such as broken backs. This became such a prevalent issue that Baylor banned football entirely for the 1906 season. President Roosevelt himself got involved when his own son was injured during a college football game, and at the end of 1905, he called a meeting at the White House to discuss how to make the sport safer for athletes. This meeting resulted in the admission of forward pass and punting, and the new rules were finalized in 1906. 
Baylor decided to reconvene its team after these rule changes and faced A&M again in the 1908 season, where Baylor came away with a win. In the year 1916, the two schools decided to make their rivalry official, and the administrations from both universities signed a contract guaranteeing that the teams would meet for one game each season, with tickets split down the middle, half of the fans being from Baylor and half the fans being from A&M. They met each year at the Cotton Palace, Baylor's new football stadium, and this quickly became one of the most famous football matchups in the state of Texas. In 1922, Baylor won the game against A&M, and as Baylor students stormed the field to celebrate their win, A&M fans decided to defend their team's honor as well. As disagreements began to get out of hand, the fire department was forced to spray down the fans with water to defuse the situation, which was effective this time, but the rivalry was soon to turn violent. In the fall of 1922, a 20-year-old Charles Sessoms began his career as an A&M student. He had graduated from Forest Avenue High School in Dallas in 1918, but at that time had decided to continue living at home with his parents while he searched for a job in town. He found work as a jewelry clerk in downtown Dallas, and his high school teachers described him as hardworking, meaning he quickly worked his way up the ranks in the store, securing a promotion to salesman. Charles's brother, Harry, graduated from high school in the spring of 1922, enrolling at Texas A&M, and Charles had a change of heart because of this, deciding that he was going to attend college with his brother in the fall. A little bit into Charles's career at A&M, on Saturday, November 1st of 1924, Baylor and A&M faced off again, and 25,000 fans filled the Cotton Palace on that day. This was the biggest football crowd that Waco had ever seen. The game was close, however, at halftime, a few Baylor students piled into a red and white painted Ford, which was the school's colors at the time, and drove onto the field. This car was famous around campus, and it was known as the Bucking Ford. This seemed like innocent school spirit until the Ford started heading towards the A&M football team resting on their sideline, narrowly missing some of the players. The second half resumed, however, the A&M fans were still upset about the near miss that happened at halftime. After Baylor scored a 60-yard touchdown to win the game, their fans once again stormed the field to celebrate, and A&M cadets headed down to the stands after them. Waco police were able to break up this confrontation before it turned into a full-out brawl, but at least one female Baylor student was injured in an attack by an A&M cadet. This girl's father offered reward money to anyone who could identify the attacker, but no one ever turned that person in. After these two instances of violent fans in 1922 and 1924, Baylor announced a slogan for the 1925 matchup, Sportsmanship, then Victory, but this was interpreted as slander against the unsportsmanlike conduct by A&M the previous year. In the 1925 game, which was scheduled for Halloween night, A&M shut out Baylor, winning 13 to nothing, but by all accounts, the atmosphere in the stands on that night was relatively peaceful. However, this all changed in 1926, and the game scheduled for Saturday, October 30th. A Waco newspaper reported that by Friday night, multiple fights had already broken out among football fans who were already in Waco, and on this occasion, the A&M Corps cadets had decided not to attend the big game, so of the 13,000 fans who were present, only a few hundred were A&M supporters. 
Charles Sassam was one of the Aggie fans in attendance, and by this year he was a senior at the university, and he had celebrated his 24th birthday only a month prior to this game. At around 2 p.m., A&M's band marched onto the field, belting the school's fight song, the Aggie Way Hymn. The game did not start off well for the A&M team, who won the coin toss and elected to defer, with Baylor almost returning the opening kickoff for a touchdown. By halftime, A&M was trailing by a score of 13-7, to and things were not looking positive for the Aggies after the shutout from the previous year. Baylor had planned a satirical halftime show for this game, dressing up as cadets to mock the A&M fans, and a car barreled out onto the field. This wasn't the famous Ford from the 1924 matchup, however, it was full of six female Baylor students, each girl holding a sign with Baylor's winning scores from previous rivalry games. Aggie accounts suggest that there was an agreement between the two schools that no vehicles were to be allowed on the field during games after the events of the 1924 matchup. However, Baylor Yale leader at the time, Frank Wood, denied that any such agreement ever existed. A young A&M cadet, W.L. Lee, ran towards the moving car and leaped onto it, forcing the car to stop, and one of the women fell out of the vehicle as a result, a young girl named Louise Normand. At that point, Baylor fans rushed to help the young girls from the car, and this set off a series of violent outbursts from both sides that erupted into a full-on brawl. A Baylor freshman at the time, a man named A.T. Moses, told the Baylor Line Alumni Magazine in 1985 that, quote, almost the entire Baylor student body and most of the Aggie contingent stormed simultaneously onto the field, and all Hades broke loose, end quote. Hundreds of students rushed the field, carrying with them any weapons they could find, including empty bottles, boards, or even pieces of their chairs. Charles Sessoms jumped from his seat and joined in, but the reason for this is unclear. It has been said that he was trying to rescue a young woman he saw caught up in the riot, as well as that him and some other upperclassmen were trying to break up the fights. Others have said that Sessoms was trying to join the fight with his fellow cadets, this comes from a friend of Sesum's, E.A. Vance, who attended the game with him. However, Sesum's father has since said that his intentions were only noble, and he wanted to break up the fighting and cool tempers among his younger classmates. Just as Charles got onto the field, a stocky man allegedly took a swing at him with a four-foot-long wooden club, piece of a chair, or possibly part of a broken fence. Charles dodged this initial attack, chasing the man through the chaos on the field. The man turned as Charles was following him, taking two additional swings, both of which Charles was able to block with his arms. However, the man raised the club behind his shoulder, taking one final swing, and the piece of wood connected with Charles's head. A witness described this impact as being so loud that it sounded like a gunshot. Charles immediately fell down, and the man dropped his weapon and fled. Two cadets ran to Charles and took him to the sidelines to avoid the threat of being trampled among the fights. Charles had suffered a severe gash to his head about two and a half inches long sitting above his left ear, and he was bleeding profusely and seemed confused when he was taken to a first aid station for evaluation. However, he was still conscious. He was able to walk and talk a few moments after sustaining the blow, although he did seem completely out of it. 
At the first aid station, he was seen by the nurse on duty, who gave him a glass of ammonia and water, which caused him to throw up while he was waiting for a doctor to come and check on him. Meanwhile, on the field, Texas A&M's Yale leader J.D. Langford got the attention of the A&M band leader, who rallied the band and they started to play the national anthem, which caused a calm to settle across the field. Almost at once, the fighting was over and fans returned to their seats for the second half. Baylor resumed their lead, beating the Aggies by 11, and the fighting never continued after this halftime debacle. At around 4 p.m., Dr. Harold Lanham, who had only attended the game as a spectator, left his seat in the stands to examine Charles Sussums. He was likely surprised to see such a serious injury result from the fighting and noted that large purple bruises had already started to form across Charles's face. He wasn't able to determine beyond certainty that Charles's skull was fractured, and without medical equipment there, there wasn't much he could do to help Charles, so he cleaned the wound and wrapped it with sterile bandages, then returning to his seat to watch the rest of the game. He checked back in on Charles after the game, and by that point, Texas A&M's president had already visited Sesum's bedside. Sesum's was flickering in and out of consciousness, and Lanham decided then that he needed to be under hospital supervision, at least for the night. By the time he reached the hospital, Providence Sanitarium, there wasn't much they could do for him, although his doctors even assumed that with rest, he was going to make a full recovery. Charles started throwing up blood a little bit after dinner time, and Lanham and the other doctors realized that his skull had undoubtedly been fractured, but all they could do was administer him morphine for the pain. A little bit after midnight, Dr. Lanham left the hospital to go home and get some sleep, returning first thing in the morning to check on Sesum's condition. Although he quickly realized that Charles had gotten much worse overnight, and on 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, October 31st of 1926, he succumbed to his injuries, passing away. Officially, his death was caused by a blood clot as a result of the attack, and by the time Charles's parents had boarded a train in downtown Dallas to make the three-hour trip to visit their son in the hospital, he had already died. Later that same day, an inquest determined that Sesums had died as a result of complications of a skull fracture caused by, quote, a party or parties unknown. By November 2nd, A&M's administration launched an investigation in order to discover who this unknown party was and bring them to justice. One by one, A&M officials questioned any students who admitted to being involved in the riots, but no one could provide a name, and even getting a clear description was difficult. There were only two points that each witness was able to describe consistently, First, that the person who hit Charles was short, and that they were wearing a blue suit. The investigation concluded with only this vague description and some dead-end leads, and it seemed that the A&M administration had been more interested in damage control and public relations than anything else. On November 3rd, Baylor President Samuel Brooks headed to A&M to meet with its president, T.O. Walton, and the two discussed how to put this incident behind them. After 10 hours, they put together a joint statement agreeing to split the responsibility of Charles's death between the two schools. This seemed to satisfy both presidents, and they seemed to think that by sharing the blame they could acknowledge the event and begin to put it behind them, but when this statement was spread throughout both campuses, this turned out to not be the case. 
Baylor students wrote an angry petition in response to the administration's statement stating that they believed they should carry no responsibility and blaming the riot entirely on A&M students. They called to sever all athletic contracts with A&M and over a third of the student body signed this petition. A&M students were quick to respond to this, accusing Baylor of inciting the riot and even of stockpiling weapons in the stands before the game and it immediately became clear that the only concern between the two schools was placing blame on who had started the riot and not on the tragedy that had struck Charles Sesum's family as a result. To add to this sentiment, local police never even opened an official murder investigation, and local headlines only ran the story of Charles's death extremely briefly. To respond to this, a group of A&M alumni decided that they still wanted an answer, into Charles's death, so they pooled their resources and hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency to look into the case. On November 22nd, a Pinkerton detective, Elof Benedict, arrived in Waco, Texas to start his own investigation. He quickly discovered that Waco Mayor Herschel Connolly had been spending the last three weeks since Sesame's death spreading his own tale of events. In his own words, Connolly had dashed onto the field to help break up the fighting, where he had personally witnessed the attack on Charles. Benedict went to question him immediately, but was sent away by Connolly's wife, who claimed that he was busy. So Benedict decided to wake up early the next morning and head to the mayor's office in downtown Waco. The mayor agreed to speak with Benedict, however, he gave the detective a completely different story. He claimed that Sesums had been incredibly drunk and that he was the one who had started the altercation claiming that this Baylor student had simply been defending himself. This encounter left Benedict with a lot of questions. Every other witness had sworn that Charles was sober on that day, including E.A. Vance, who had spent the entire day with him. All of the other witnesses had also been sure that Charles had not provoked the fight. He also noted that the mayor was oddly evasive when it came to the identity of the person who struck Charles. He claimed that he could remember details down to the pattern on this person's tie, but also claimed that he wouldn't recognize them if he saw them again. He also mentioned in the interview with Benedict that the boy was a Baylor student, but then claimed that he had never met him before. A few hours later, on November 23rd, Benedict met a man who claimed that someone named Sniper had killed Charles Sessoms, a person whose real name was Hubert Connolly, the mayor's own third cousin. Connolly had been a successful former Baylor football player, and when Benedict asked the man who gave him this lead to sign an official witness statement on November 24th, he refused to do so. So with that setback, Benedict went to find the gas station attendant named Earl who had first begun to spread the story about Sniper being Sesson's attacker. On November 26th, he found Earl, but he said that he had only heard someone say that it was Sniper as he was leaving the game, and that he actually hadn't seen the incident occur. Benedict started to suspect that his witnesses were afraid of the implications of being someone who turned against the mayor's family, so he decided that he was going to go and find Sniper himself. Unfortunately, when he found Sniper to interview him, he quickly realized that he had made a mistake. As A&M investigations had found, the killer was consistently described as short, and Sniper was about 5 foot 9 inches tall, Sniper claims that he had helped the mayor on the field trying to break up the fights, 
and Benedict knew that based on what was in front of him, he didn't have anything concrete to consider Sniper a legitimate suspect. By mid-December, Benedict was still making his way through Waco interviewing Baylor's students, and he had received no information until he met with Baylor's athletic director, Ralph Wolf, on December 19th. Wolf had been on the field during the riot, and he told a similar story to the other witnesses. However, he mentioned that there was a rumor going around the football locker room that Sniper Connolly had been the attacker. Benedict mentioned that he had already spoken to Hubert, at which point Wolf told him of another Sniper Connolly, Edwin Connolly, who was reportedly called Little Sniper because he was short. Benedict realized that he might have been after the wrong Connolly the whole time, and headed over to Ed's house almost immediately. Ed fit these descriptions perfectly. He was about 5 foot 5 and 140 pounds, and he even admitted to wearing a blue suit to the game that day. At this point, Benedict felt really close to solving the murder, but he knew that he needed more convincing evidence and set out looking for an eyewitness testimony. On December 30th of 1926, Benedict contacted a witness named Y.C. Carlisle, asking if he would come to Waco to try and identify Ed. We can't be sure of why Benedict chose Carlisle in particular above all of the other witnesses, but the most likely theory is that Carlisle was an out-of-towner and would not have been afraid of possibly ruffling some feathers with the Waco mayor. Unfortunately, Benedict never got his chance to meet with Carlisle, and on December 31st he received a message from his bosses ordering him to leave Waco and return to the Pinkerton Field office in Dallas right away for a new assignment. Pinkerton was closing their investigation right as Benedict had gotten a major lead in the case, but the reason for this has never been disclosed. It is possible that the alumni had only paid Pinkerton for services through the end of 1926, however it is likely that Benedict would have known that information had this been the case. It is also possible that someone who knew the answers in Charles's murder was powerful enough to shut down the investigation, realizing that Benedict was making serious progress. While the investigation itself was over, the impact of Charles's death was not insignificant, and in 1926, the two presidents from Baylor and A&M convened once again, signing a document to end the rivalry between the two football schools canceling all of the existing athletic contracts between them. In the spring of 1927, as A&M's senior class was preparing to graduate, they printed a tribute to Charles in the school's yearbook, saying that he died, quote, in the line of duty, end quote. And this was accompanied by a photo of Charles and a poem saying that he would always live on in Aggie Hall of Fames. It wasn't until 1932 that Baylor and A&M began to play football against each other once again, by which time all of the students involved in the riot had graduated and moved on without Charles by their sides. The 1932 game was a home game for A&M in which they defeated Baylor by a score of 33-7. to As of today, the last time that the Baylor and Texas A&M teams played each other was on October 15th of 2011, with A&M beating Baylor 55-28. The teams remain non-rivals and do not play each other yearly, a reminder of the tragedy of that 1926 riot that left Charles Sessoms dead. Though his murder will remain unsolved, the timeline of Benedict's investigation leaves us with a fair amount of confidence in Edwin Connolly's guilt and the ripple effects 
of the events on that day remain readily apparent in the athletic relationships between the two schools. Charles may never get justice for his murder, but in the Aggies' own words, he will not be lost to time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crime Bistro, and I hope you enjoyed this fascinatingly twisty case. Though I am not one to always jump at conspiracy cover-ups, I do believe that there was a deliberate cause for the abrupt end to Benedict's investigation, and that someone out there at the time knew exactly what happened to Charles on that day. That being said, we still will never know the real culprit, but we can certainly surmise and be conscious of all the suspicious happenings surrounding Charles's untimely death. That is going to wrap up the episode for this week, so be sure to visit the show notes at crimebistro.com for all of these sources and additional media, and follow the podcast on Instagram at crimebistropodcast for some behind-the-scenes look at some more exciting cases to come. As always, until next time.